Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. On that point with, because, you know, you said that God needed you to be honest. And so as a, as a church leader, you feel like, okay, it's my job to get Stephen honest and radically honest. And so I'm going to beat him up a little bit in my office and make it like, hey, you got to be honest here or whatnot. So, I mean, what's a church leader supposed to do with that concept? Because they can't, because the the church leader couldn't force you to get that wake up call per se, right? God had to find you on that path and sort of shake you. So is it safe to say sometimes that person just may not be there yet and you just have to be patient with it or how would you direct that? Well, a person's always going to have their agency and we will never force them to be humble. We will mm-hmm. never force right. them to be accountable. We will never force them to be completely honest. That is between ourselves and God. Yeah. And I do believe that what happens in a person's life is God gives us a number of interruptions. I've had lots of interruptions. Yeah. And all of them blessings from God in his patient, loving way. He's basically waiting for me to come to myself, to use my agency wisely, to learn how to, we'll use the term now called surrender. Yeah surrender to him where the power really is for recovery. So with that honesty, and there's a powerful scripture, and I'll, it's Alma 3431. It actually is one of my very favorite scriptures because it is true in that what happens when a person like myself chooses to become radically honest. Scripture is, yea, I would that you would come forth and harden not your hearts any longer. For behold, now is the time and the day of your salvation. Therefore, if you will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately will the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. Hmm. What that's saying is God is inviting us to soften our hearts and become repentant in our desires and our will. And then immediately upon that actually occurring within our spirit and our body, God will step in and that instant his hand is involved in being able to help us. Until then, I'm on my own because yeah. I, he's not going to interrupt my agency. So, and it makes me wonder, like, and this goes back to your story as well, Chris, is like, why not like before you serve that mission, Chris, why didn't he have, you know, disrupt your life enough? Or why not, Stephen, when you were 35, why didn't he cause you to get arrested then, right? What comes to mind as far as your story, Chris, like is this concept of, because there's, you know, everybody in recovery has that moment where they sort of shift right to, it's not just about sobriety anymore. It's about recovery, but what thoughts come to mind for you, Chris? Well, that's an interesting question. I wish I had a really solid answer is the timing, but I knew know God that he is in the timing and he is a very student centered teacher. And as a result, he's not going to deny us those lessons we have to learn to progress, to become more like him. So it took me longer. I mean, sometimes I, I envy guys in their 20s who are in recovery and they, they've got this figured out and they have tools. Well, Stephen and I didn't have tools. We didn't know decades ago what we were even dealing with. And so the fact that we have tools now and the people are talking about this, and that's the greatest thing that's come of my uh, disclosure on your podcast back in February was that people are starting to talk about it now. And that's a powerful, powerful thing. So. I don't know exactly why it took me as long as it did. I'm grateful in the end that I met where I'm at today. They're recording this on the 15th of the month, and it's 43 months of sobriety Mm -hmm. going back to April 15th. 
of 2019. So I'm just so grateful to God, first of all, that he trusted me back in 2013 when he said, you'll need to tell your story. And the thing that that makes me love Stephen is the general authority that restored his temple blessings is the same general authority I disclosed this to, the very same person. (laughs) And that makes me feel connected to both of them and and since he's passed away. But I don't know why the timing is. I do know that God is in the details, though, and I know that there's something about that that is very important. Yeah, and I guess I bring that up because I feel like some leaders are thinking, all right, you know, Stephen, tell me what to do because I'm if I'm that bishop with you at 35, I'm going to make sure that you don't have to go through this again and again. When in reality, it's almost like God needed to show you that three years of white knuckling just doesn't work. And so let's try this again, Stephen, because you're, you know, as many times as it'll take, he'll still come for you. And I think this, you know, going back to the principle of surrender, like leaders have to surrender as well. They have to surrender Stephen. Be like, I can't force him to be radically honest. He's on his path. I'm going to go, you know, it looks like he's been sober for a year or whatever. So let's, you know, get him back, you know, integrated in the church and callings and things. But God may still be on that path with you, right? That, that we have to surrender as leaders that you're not going to do everything right so that Stephen doesn't have to make this a 30-year journey rather than a, a 10-year journey. Right. Yeah. Well, the the Lord has given us agency that we can grow and experience all the opportunities that this life gives. And so here we are in mortality with weakness. Yeah. Weakness is mortality. That's here we are with this incredibly blessing of being in this beautiful earth with incredible people blessed with the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his atonement. And then here we are, here I am a believer in all of this, yet I'm choosing to go against that in my behavior. Why would I, after that first experience, not recognize that I was dealing with an addiction? That's a very difficult thing to understand and to accept. And until I was willing to actually acknowledge that many, many years later, I didn't know what it meant to put boundaries and bottom lines in place and honestly abide by them. I didn't know what the concept of surrender was. I didn't know how important it was for me to be involved with others in recovery, where I could share my story and more importantly, be able to help other people. I didn't understand this concept of how important it was for me to be honest about every aspect of my life. We use the term radically honest. What does that mean? It means if I have a Coke for lunch, And I'm really not supposed to have a Coke for lunch, not because it's got caffeine in it, but because it's got caffeine and sugar and I get sick and I I get problems with my digestive tract and everything else, yet I still think that I need to have a Coke. But because I know I shouldn't be having one, I don't want to tell my wife that I had a Coke for lunch. Now that is not radically honest. Mm -hmm. If I have a Coke for lunch, I need to say I had a Coke for lunch. So in that simple honesty, there's power and there's connection. And there's restoration of trust, which has been broken so importantly. So if I were to talk about, if I were to, and my wife and I have many, many opportunities to speak with people, couples oftentimes, about recovery. And it's impossible for us to share the actual growth that comes from working all of the work of recovery, all of the process of recovery. We can talk about it, but a person doesn't know it until they actually experience it themselves. And my thought, and this is my thought that just popped into my mind at the moment, the Savior, when he, he was called from the beginning as the Savior and knew that his calling would be to, in mortality, suffer and atone in incredible ways, and I'm sure instructed constantly about what that meant. 
But until he got to that experience, he didn't know. Mm-hmm. And when he asked God, his father, isn't there another way? He was asking, not because he didn't want to do it, but he recognized how difficult it was. And isn't there another way? And the father said, essentially, no, there is no other way. The Savior went through that, but didn't really, really know it until he experienced it. And I think it's that way in the work of recovery. We can talk about it all we want, but a person must go through the process. And Chris, I don't know if if this has been your experience, but I had to be willing to go to a meeting with an open heart and find a sponsor and hear his story and tell my story and go through that process and so that I knew what it meant to have someone not judge me when I told my story. I had to be able to then experience all of this work where I'm acknowledging my character defects, where I'm recognizing that God is the only one that can really heal me. And then I know that I've got to make amends. I know that I've got to acknowledge when I'm wrong. And I need to be given an opportunity to help other people. Nowhere else is that opportunity as succinct as it is in working the 12 steps. Because there isn't an opportunity to be radically honest without shame, sadly, in an elders quorum meeting today. It just doesn't work that way. And I could tell some stories about that. I was, anyway, I won't go into detail there, but we can't in that environment be that radically honest, but there are places where we can, and that is critical. We can do that in a qualified therapist's office. We can do that in a bishop's office. We can do that in a 12-step meeting. We can find people who are understanding and support us in our recovery. And if we don't do that, we are essentially inside ourselves, which is a very dangerous place to be. Yeah, The alcoholics would say, if you're in your own head, you're behind enemy lines. And that's true. Wow. And that's so helpful. You know, you know, we have this long tradition and doctrine of confession, you know, in the bishop's office. And sometimes it feels like, why are we doing this? Like, why do I have to tell this random person in my neighborhood these things? But again, you're practicing this radical honesty, right? Uh, it's a, a venue for you to step into and begin to practice it. And then you need maybe the, the 12 steps, then you begin to practice it, right? And maybe we can get Elder Quorum to a place where we can be a little more radically honest because there is a healing nature of that surrender of that information, right? It is out in the open. I have no control over it anymore. And here we go, right? Yeah. And what we find, excuse me, Chris, you've got something to say, but I will say that what we find is when I've told my story, I don't find people out there judging me. I found people out there wanting to understand because oftentimes they need the help as well. Yeah. So what comes to mind, Chris? Yeah, that's, that's certainly true. I'm just reminded of a experience that I had as I sat with a person and a reconvening to consider this person being rebaptized. And again, well-intending priest leaders suggest, you know, I'd rather you spend more time working on the atonement of Jesus Christ and get healing from that. You've talked a lot about 12 steps, and that's fine, but I want you to put more effort on this. And as I've gone forward in my recovery since that time, I've come to realize that the 12 steps this is what I say. I said, there's 12 steps to Jesus, because that's exactly where we are taken when we, in step one, we confess that we can't do it without his help. And, you know, step 10 talks about when we're wrong, promptly admit it. Well, that's a hard one for me. And so as I try to practice these things, that honesty does indeed bring me closer to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite scriptures is close to the one that, um, Stephen shared in Alma, 
and Alma 36, where he tells his conversion story to his sons. And in the process of that, and, and you might be familiar, some people with a literary style called chiasmus, where yeah. you tell a story through, po- A's, uh, through point A through H, and then you repeat the story like an hourglass in reverse order. Well, if you look at Alma 36, and it's a beautiful example of a chiasmus, verse 18 seems to be the middle. And it said, Oh, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. And isn't that the crux to the gospel? Nothing else really matters except his willingness to extend mercy and grace to us, his children. So, one thing recovery does, because of that honesty, you invite the Savior into your life. And I often say this, and I think I did at the beginning of this, that addiction cannot survive the light of Christ. You know, it will wilt in his presence. But we have to make that invitation. We have to be transparent in the, you know, the, the honesty we're talking about here allows that to happen. Without that honesty, I don't think we can get there. Yeah. And like the principle I'm learning here is like, if there's somebody out there who's like so buried in shame that the first step is just to begin to be radically honest. And it could be like, you're just going to be radically honest about your lunch, you know, to start with. And then, cause there's, I feel like there's such a way to like, okay, I've got to walk in the other room and disclose to my spouse, like what I've done, or I got to set the appointment with the Bishop and whatnot, but just begin on that radical honesty. And then that practice that surrender, which will guide you to the next step. Right. Yeah. Well, the, with radical honesty, that next step is God is now walking with us. Right. And I believe that to the core of my heart. With radical honesty, God is walking with us. If I am dishonest, then how can I expect the blessing to come? Because he's not going to, he's not going to interrupt my agency. That's my choice. Yeah. On this topic, let me ask, you know, this is concept of disclosure. Because often as I hear different stories, the, uh, the story you know of recovery usually begins with, I finally went into the bishop's office and disclosed, or I went and talked to my wife and disclosed. But is that always the best first step? Or Because <laughs> sometimes I worry that we feel like we have to start with the bishop's office in order to disclose there, and you that's the starting point, where in reality, maybe you find a good therapist at the beginning, or maybe you just call a friend and start talking with them about it. What what thoughts come to mind? Well, it seems that the most common place where people start is in the bishop's office, Mm -hmm. whether that's necessarily the right spot or not. Sometimes there will be disclosure to a friend, and that is really not a place generally where a lot of uh, real help will be found. Sometimes there will be some acceptance and maybe a person will express their love and concern, but there's oftentimes not an understanding of help. But I do think that within the church, most often, especially young people, will oftentimes disclose to their parents, sometimes not, and they'll, they'll, they'll talk to their bishop about the use of pornography, sometimes masturbation, sometimes both. And in that kind of disclosure, there is power the challenge then with the individual that's giving that disclosure and, re- and honestly confessing, the challenge then becomes, what do I do thereafter with this? Because oftentimes, especially young people think, okay, I've done what I was supposed to do. I've confessed. And now I'm going to go on with my life. Mm-hmm. And literally leaving the bishop's office, there is a lighter feeling. Mm-hmm. I have confessed. Yeah. There is an immediate blessing for doing this. When it's honest, there's an immediate blessing. Okay, I've done what I was supposed to do. Not realizing that 
And this is where we can get into uh, the idea of talking about addiction. There are a lot of people who want to say, let's not identify the use of pornography, the repeated compulsive use of pornography as an addiction, because oftentimes there, there are some who say, if we call it an addiction, it becomes shaming and people will then think of themselves as a bad person and that will that will hinder their ability to stop the behavior. Well, that hasn't been my experience. There are some who say, let's not call it an addiction. We can call it a compulsion or a bad habit. Let's not call it an addiction. My feeling is, let's call it what it is. Mm-hmm. And the research honestly is, I believe, very conclusive on this, that there are significant changes that occur in the brain. There are changes that occur spiritually and emotionally, no doubt, with the repeated use of any behavior. That I mean, whether it's overeating, undereating, whether it's gambling, whether it's sex, which all three are behavioral addictions. I think we easily associate addiction with substances. We don't easily associate addiction with behavior. My experience is behavioral addictions can actually become more, much more difficult to deal with than mm-hmm. substance addictions. We could go into that detail. But rather than saying, I'm going to debate with the bishop or someone else whether I've got an ad- addict, an addiction or not, what if I say, I am dealing with something that I have tried to stop many times and been unable to do so? I've gone back to it time and time again, even though I've repeatedly tried to stop. Am I a person that doesn't have the moral character to deal with this? I just, I'm just not strong enough. I just don't have the willpower. Why is it that I'm going back to this? Well, what if I say to myself, I'm not going to try and figure out if this is an addiction or not. I'm going to recognize all the damage that it's doing to my life and to the lives of others, my inability to connect, my inability to connect with God, my wife, with others, and then say, I need to recognize that there are certain things that I must be willing to do, and maybe that would be to treat this like an addiction. Maybe I don't call myself an addict, but I'm going to treat this like an addiction, which means I have to have boundaries, which means I have to have bottom lines, which needs me to be able to be honest about all behaviors. And so with that honesty, then I can receive the help that I need. In receiving the help that I need, I may come to the conclusion that, yes, my life has become unmanageable, and it's not just because I'm a bad person with no character and no willpower. It's because, literally, I'm bound by the chains of hell. I'm dealing with an addiction. Mm -hmm. And so that idea that I had when I came forward for the first time, went to a 12-step meeting and felt shamed even talking about addiction, I think is one that most people that enter the rooms of recovery actually feel. And I I empathize because I've been there. I also recognize that until I was willing to acknowledge that I was dealing with something that had a powerful emotional, spiritual, and physical impact on my body, that was lust, until I was willing to do certain things, it had more power than I was able to deal with, period. Yeah. That was my experience. Yeah. Any thoughts come to mind, Chris? I, mean, I want to make sure. Don't- yeah, I've had conversations with members of the church and some with priest leaders who have an aversion to the term addiction. Some people might remember if they heard the podcast back in February that, you know, my father's an alcoholic, his father's an alcoholic, my grandmother on that side was an alcoholic. And so I don't think it's coincidental. I think there's a there's a genetic predisposition. Some families are fraught with one challenge and some with another. And, and so and that's not an excuse, right? You're just Right, you're, right. Yeah. But, but it's important to acknowledge yeah. that because when I learned that, I thought, well, maybe there's an explanation. 
other than I'm just a weak moral reprobate, which is a lot of the shame that people embrace when they think I just can't stop doing this. And so I think it's important to understand that. But like you say, you can't use that as an excuse. But I just think in my journey, it's been very, very important for me to acknowledge that that plays a role. And so when an individual has and expresses an aversion to using the term addiction, I just simply ask, and Stephen rehearsed this, is that, do you have a behavior that you don't like? Yes. Have you tried hundreds of times to stop and you can't? Yes. Are you ashamed by the fact that you can't stop? Well, yes. So call it what you want, but it is a biochemical brain condition that you're dealing with here. And that understanding, again, not as an excuse, but is critically important to understand that it could A, be genetic in its presence, but also that it really does have a chemical hook. And I think anyone who struggled with this has felt that flood of whether it's adrenaline or other drugs or chemicals that come into our bloodstream, but we literally feel that surge. Stephen, have you experienced that before? Oh, of course. Yeah. I think the acting out behaviors have an immediate, re- immediate reward. Lust certainly does. Yeah. There's a chemical reaction that gives our body that surge of emotion and it can be euphoric. The challenge is, is that euphoric feeling that we feel like, oh, I'd like to have that again. It has a very serious downside to it because it's immediately followed by these feelings of shame and anger towards oneself, resentment towards myself and others. It has a terrible consequence. And so what happens is, and for me, this idea of there are all kinds of different different ways that people act out sexually. There are all kinds of ways that people try to excuse themselves in this behavior. And one of the excuses that people use is, I really don't do this very much. Mm. And we call those folks, I do, a periodic. Mm. But the consequences come back and are actually the same every time. And that is that I feel when I choose to do these things, I feel unworthy of God's love. I feel unworthy of the love of others. I then feel unworthy myself. I don't like myself. So whether I'm a periodic or whether I'm a daily user, those feelings are still there. The one thing about sexual addiction, which is a real challenge, is it doesn't just want more. It wants different. That has to be recognized. Hmm. It doesn't stay in the same way. Even a person that uses pornography only, they will progress to the deeper, darker, most violent types of pornography that a person can even imagine. And so what happens to our spiritual nature when we subject ourselves to that kind of really violent type of sexual experience? And so the science basically is that there is a change in brain chemistry. I highly recommend a book that, frankly, I study often. I did this morning again, along with scripture study. And I've mentioned it before, Dopamine Nation by Anna Lemke. It is, she's a professor at Stanford University. Uh, she's a psychiatrist, highly, highly qualified. She spoke at our conference last fall. And what she essentially describes is what happens is our brain is constantly looking for a, to be normal, to have a state of balance. And if we're constantly exposing our brains to certain things, uh, behaviors, then we become We need to find balance in that. And so once a person becomes a user, they feel out of balance if they're not using. The white book says the only way to be free of it was to do it. 
That's a very interesting thought. Mm, yeah. The only way to be free of it is to do it. Well, why would that be the case? It's because I'm drawn back to it against my will. And so every time that I go through this process of acting out, I then have the commitment never again. Well, that could last 20 minutes. That could last 20 days. That could last three years in my part. Because so, that's where you found balance, right? That's where I found balance. That's right. Yeah. So in an addiction, there isn't this opportunity to be a periodic. There really is not. So an alcoholic can't be a periodic. And really, their alcohol being toxic to the system, a person has to choose that they're no longer going to participate in the behavior in order to be safe. Mm. Well, the same thing has to happen with the behaviors associated with this behavioral addiction. And that is, I can't be a person who's periodically using pornography to satisfy some kind of an emotional need. And that's generally why it's used. And so a person could be bored, especially young people. They, they'll go to the behavior because they're bored. Mm. And that becomes very, very, they become drawn into that, trying to find this balance okay, I'm no longer bored if I'm doing porn and I've got porn on my phone. All I have to do is pull it out and look at it and then I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. Well, the solution, as the white book says, sooner or later becomes the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I want to highlight here that often comes up in the dynamic of maybe a, a bishop's office where an individual who's out of balance or seeking for balance in all the wrong ways comes to a bishop who he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't struggle with this. And, and so when he hears their experience, it's like, oh, well, you need to do just what I do. And what I do is I just make sure I read my scriptures in the morning. I'm, you know, stay busy, right? And I go to the gym or whatever it is. And, and that's why I think it's important that, you know, Chris, you talk about the genetics that may be involved, even the life experience, whether someone was sexually abused as a child or, I mean, all these dynamics that come up that maybe didn't come up in the leader's life. And they, again, they're not excuses, but they're thinking they're sort of, uh, it's data to realize, okay, there may be additional resources here to untangle the, the mess that's going on here in order to find a healthy way to achieve balance rather than just do what I do. Cause I get, I achieve balance just, just fine. So do what I do. Right. <laughs> well, and you know, a light went on years ago when I heard this quote for the first time it said, pornography is not my problem. Pornography is my solution. Yeah. So what's my problem? Why do I self-medicate? What void am I trying to fill? And that's where it goes, where Stephen talked about the therapy, and I've done that with a therapist and trying to identify whatever voids are present or childhood trauma or behaviorally. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of things that could come into play when we consider that, but that generally is not the problem. But, but we as a society, we have the war on drugs, as if drugs are the problem. And if we get rid of drugs, then the addiction issues will go away. Well, we know that's not true. Mm -hmm. people will just self-medicate with something else. And so mental health and awareness is critical in getting a grip on this. Nice. All right. So let me sort of review what I'm learning at this, uh, at this point. What we talked about, because we're, we're basically approaching the landscape of recovery. Like what does this actually look like in real life and in individual stories and whatnot? And when you talked about just the surrender factor, that radical honesty, and then uh, the the importance of reaching out for help, you know, having connection and not putting it behind you and pretending it's not there, but putting it in front of you and saying, I need help with this. And then uh, this third part um, is the the understanding of maybe the triggers or the components that feed into this behavior. It's not just a behavior. It's a, it's, the, it's not the problem. It's the solution. And we need to figure out why it's the solution and then how to insert the true solution 
which is Jesus Christ, right? So the true solution is, in fact, Jesus Christ and the power of the atonement to heal. Yeah. However, it doesn't come to us without effort, doesn't come to me without effort on my part. That's when I say I'm responsible for my own recovery. What does that mean? Well, it starts with honesty, but I have a lot of work to do. And so what is the work that I need to do? And that I need to, with a committed heart, be humble, honest, and accountable. That's one of the words, some of the words that we use. That's what recovery looks like, humble, honest, and accountable. But how do I get there? It Yes, it starts with this idea that I need to be open and honest and confess and strengthen my testimony. But where do I find the answers to the question about what is surrender? How do I surrender? Mm. What does that mean? And I can ask any person the question about what does it mean to surrender that hasn't worked recovery? And most generally, the feeling is that means to wave the white flag. Mm. Oh, and I'm defeated. That isn't what surrender means. What surrender means is I will take the action of surrender, which means get out of myself and work with another person or persons who I can't then explain where I am and have them explain back to me their experience. That's with a sponsor. So my wife uses the term on the phone on my knees, in the box. In other words, I will call somebody and talk to them about how I feel. Now, how often does that work? 100% of the time. How often are people willing to do that? Not very often. (laughs) But on the phone, on my knees, I'm going to pray for strength to continue this process. And now I'm going to write down how I really feel. And in in the process of working my recovery, I might be in a meeting and say, I had this event occur in my life that I called my sponsor. I prayed for strength. I wrote down, I looked in the white book, and I happened to read this, this, this particular sentence that said that God is aware of you. And it's just amazing to me that, in fact, Patrick Carnes talks about the idea that when we're in our own head, we're behind enemy lines. When we're outside of ourselves and we're willing to, in a safe environment, talk about what was going on in our life, that's surrender then we can, in fact, be empowered by that. We're telling our story in an empowering way instead of keeping it inside ourselves. And so the work of recovery includes qualified therapy. There's a whole discussion on what that means. If we find a therapist who says it's okay to do porn and masturbation, then we haven't found a therapist that's going to help us stop our addictive behaviors. (laughs) If we have a therapist that doesn't understand the importance of 12-step and what that really means to make the spiritual connection that's required in recovery— then we probably haven't found the right therapist. So what about our level of education? What do we really understand about this from an educational standpoint? That's why I keep bringing up some of these books, and there's a number of them out there that if we will pay attention to them, they'll help us understand what we're dealing with. And so if we really consider about these actions of recovery, then we can, with those actions, I'm leaving one out, the boundaries and bottom lines, I have to set boundaries to stay safe. The alcoholics would say it this way. I've been traveling the road of recovery for years, but the ditch is still right there. What does that mean? What it means to me is I'm still in mortality. I'm walking this narrow pathway of recovery, which doesn't give me allowances on the left or the right. I have to stay on the path, but I'm still in mortality. And if I choose to act on the mortal desires that I have to act out in any way, then I'm going to put myself back into the ditch. Does it mean I'm there forever? No, but I've gone back into the ditch and that 
ditch is a very unsafe place for me to be. So uh, just one more thing on this, Chris, and I'll pass this back to you. A lot of people will find themselves going back into the ditch. That is not the end of the world. Where did I make my big mistake the second time that I, the first time I came forward, the second time that I came forward? I went back into the ditch and I wouldn't talk about it. Mm. When I go into the ditch, if I'm going to go into the ditch, I better get the only way that I can get out of that ditch is radical honesty. And as soon as I'm willing to be honest again, I can be back on the pathway. So doesn't mean that I, I haven't been scraped up because I went in the ditch, but I'm not dead. So I can't get out of the ditch if I'm not completely honest. If I go in the ditch, get honest, yes, I may be scraped up a bit, but I'm not dead. I'll get back on the pathway, whatever that means. I think one of the greatest aha moments I've had in recovery was the realization that it has less to do with pornography and more to do with other emotions and feelings that we have. And sometimes I'll get a text from a guy that says, hey, do you have a minute? And they'll call. I just want to surrender. I felt resentment. And you think, well, how does resentment connect with addiction? Well, it is because it's a negative emotion, right? And if we don't deal with that, if we don't process that, then we're going to be very susceptible to those triggers. And the brain says, I know how to get relief. You know how to get relief. Let's just do this. And that's the solution, right? So. I think if we understand that it is very, very complex, and sometimes it has less to do with pornography and more to do with other needs that are not being met or voids that we have in our life. And that is critical to understand in recovery. And I want to highlight there that it's so much easier to talk about it when you have that context because it becomes laborious as a priesthood leader to bring the person in and talk, you know, again, how, how many relapses? Well, what are you doing? You know, are you too bored? Or, right. But to go back and say, actually, this is maybe an identity problem. Let's just talk about you as a child of God and where are you missing that? Or let's talk about, you know, there's, it's so much easier to talk about and help somebody when it's not just this behavioral issue that we always got to talk about and say, well, just stop doing it. Yeah, well, we've told ourselves a hundred times, I'm going to stop doing this. And yeah. then the bishop can reinforce that, just stop doing it. Well, <laughs> I've tried that a hundred times. It hasn't worked very well for me. Yeah. The bishop can really help a person understand that recovery is possible, that God is aware and will help each one of us. But again, the responsibility is mine. I go in and I discover this. And as my stake president told me, go out and figure this thing out. What does that mean? I have a responsibility to take the actions of recovery. And that doesn't, and even though they're not easy, they're critical. I had absolutely have, and I have to continue in this. I've, my sobriety date goes back to 2005 of August 25. And I'm grateful for that sobriety, but I still go to meetings every week. I still receive calls and make calls daily. I still continue to work the steps. I still read recovery literature. And I read the scriptures. When I got up this morning and read the scriptures, the power of the scripture, I just happened to turn and open to Moroni 10. And the promises made in the very two or three last scriptures about how perfection through the atonement of the Savior. And so it is just a blessing to me to now read the scriptures and say, I know that the power that comes to me through Jesus Christ is available to me when I access it in an honest way. And it's there. And so the advice that's given by most priesthood leaders to become more familiar with the scriptures, strength and testimony, all of those things are critical. 
I'm going to say something here, and this could get me in a bit of trouble. It's <laughs> very familiar with trouble. All right, go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> There's often a question uh, that a bishop is having to deal with when he wants to help a person become more spiritually blessed to and connected with God to strengthen them in their efforts of recovery. I'm aware of certain situations where bishops will essentially say, you have a temple recommend, go use it and strengthen your testimony mm. when they have come in to confess serious sin. Now, I look at that and say, is that an enabling comment? Yes, we need to be spiritually fed and going to the temple certainly will do that when we do that worthily. But does that become an enabling suggestion, meaning maybe my behavior isn't that bad? Maybe the advice that I've had in the past that the use of pornography or masturbation isn't so bad that I'm still worthy to attend the temple. My feeling is that we can be worthy when we stop the behavior and we get on the path of recovery relatively fast. If we progressed on to other behaviors, especially acting out with other people, then that period of time is longer and the consequences are deeper. But the consequences of using pornography shouldn't be diminished by saying you're temple worthy. If I went into the bishop's office and said, I'm here to tell you that I have a problem with alcohol. I'm going out on my own uh, before, before work. I'm just out and, and I'm, I'm having some problems with alcohol. Then I'm able to wear it off during the day before I get home. My wife doesn't know it. And I feel like I need to come and confess this. Would the message be from the bishop? Use your temple recommend and go to the temple more. I don't think so. I think it would be, brother, let's get this issue in hand and so that you're worthy to go to the temple. These are some things that you might consider doing. And so when I went into the bishop as a young, young man and confessed this, and I wasn't really given any consequences at all because I wasn't, I was given no consequences. My feeling was maybe this isn't as bad as I thought that it was. I have no consequences. So I go in and more than once I confess, I have no consequences. Well, maybe this isn't as bad as I thought. And that kind of message in the bishop's office can be detrimental to my future opportunities to really get a hold of this behavior, stop the behavior and be living in recovery. Anything to add, Chris? Well, I, I was just thinking while you were sharing there that I had a friend come to me and he struggled with this too. And he said, you know, how many times do I have to confess to the bishop? I mean, it's like this revolving door, right? Mm -hmm. He gets tired of it. The bishop's like, oh, I know why you're here. Well, you touched on something, Kurt, that's so powerful. And that is, maybe it's not the pornography. Maybe it's not the masturbation. Maybe it is something deeper. And the bishop is not qualified to be your therapist. He will recommend and offer some maybe options as to how to do that. But there really is strength and power in identifying why do I have an inclination to self-medicate? What void am I trying to feel when I do that? And if you can identify that, then recovery begins to happen. And it was just amazing to me how that light went on. And I said, it's a lot less to do with pornography and more to do with my emotions, my feelings, how I process those. And some of the challenges I faced the first year of sobriety was I still had problems. It didn't get easier. I thought it was going to be, you know, heavenly, that everything would go great, but it didn't. 
But I realized, well, I no longer have my drug of choice to medicate with and to numb out. And that's why I'm forced now to feel what I'm feeling, to process what I'm feeling. And then, you know, make a call or go to your knees. And I think that the third thing your wife said, if I'm not mistaken, is to put it in the box where she just writes on a piece of paper and she just puts it in there. She just surrenders it and says, okay, I've given that away. And so I think that's such a critical piece yeah. in all this. Yeah. Those are all action steps. Surrender yeah. is action. It's just not thinking, oh, I, I got to stop this. It's like, I will take the actions of getting outside myself. Hmm. I love that. So I'm intrigued by this. So you bring up, you know, going back to the concept of we find strength to overcome this through Jesus Christ. And like you, you sort of alluded to, some priesthood leaders may think, well, then let's get them in the temple so that they can find strength there in the temple, you know, even though this is serious. Because I also, there's the other side I worry about where by removing that temple recommend, we're sort of introducing shame into the uh, equation here. Like, I'm going to shame you out of this behavior. Like, you better get it straight or else you don't get this temple recommend back, right? When in reality, it's more of like, you're saying, I want, we want to make sure that they're looking at this as as, uh, as the problem it is. I mean, that, that they're not just saying, oh, you know, I'm just having this issue, whatever. I'm going to go back to the temple and get that strength where some leaders would say, no, that's where you find the strength. So maybe you talk to me just about this concept of what does it look like to get strength from Jesus Christ in the midst of, of addiction and, and struggles like this? The million dollar question. The, right? well, <laughs> what it means to get strength from the Savior is to be congruent with mm-hmm. oneself. And we keep coming back to this concept of honesty. Yeah. Without honesty, then we are not, I am not congruent with myself. I need to speak about it. This from my own experience. If I am not honest and I'm inside myself, I am not able to receive the strength and revelation. Not only am I not worthy, but I've cut myself off. And I think the scriptures are basically saying that the Lord is always there. Simply knock and he will open the door. And sometimes our prayer is, God, take this away from me and so that I don't have to deal with this anymore. That type of prayer is not going to benefit us at all because we have agency. What's the purpose in this entire life? It's to go through the experiencing mortality and being strengthened by it. So instead of praying, God, take this away from me, it might be, God, give me the courage and the determination to be honest about where I am with others who I need to be and so that I can feel worthy of thy blessing. Also, please bless me with insights to find the resources that I need, that I'm willing to work on, direct my path. And so in that type of prayer, we're asking for the Savior to intervene in our life, to not take away our agency, which he's not going to answer that prayer and take away our agency. Mm -hmm. He may give us an interruption to get, get us to think about it. I've experienced that in spades, which I just talked about it many times. But to experience the blessing of the Savior requires of me a willingness to turn towards him. Turning towards him means that I will be known. I will be seen. God will know that I'm willing to be seen for honestly who I am and what I am doing. And then that transparency gives me opportunity to receive light and to give light. We could go into a whole different discussion about that. But to experience the power of God's atonement requires of us to be willing to abide by the commandments, to abide and act upon that testimony that's within us. 
and hiding and lying and being deceitful, that's outside of the realm of being able to really worthily ask for help to have this relieved from me. I can honestly say that the power of the atonement is active in my life when I choose to turn towards God and honestly seek him through being honest. And then in that honesty, the scriptures mean more to me. When I read the scriptures, instead of feeling like I'm a hypocrite, I see the scriptures as something to boost me and my hope for not just recovery, but for forgiveness. And the list goes on and on. So we keep coming back to this term. I've got to be radically honest in all things that I do. Yeah. And, you know, going back to just this concept of like strength and where the temple comes into that or some of these things where a lot of times, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if someone going through addiction who's struggling, who's who's finding that balance in all the wrong ways, they first need to be justified, you know, through the Savior, Jesus Christ, to find balance through that justification. And that's often in these, you know, being radically honest and and you're starting to find that balance. And then, you know, maybe the sacrament starts to take a, a role in that. And then we can't send people to the temple unless they're in a posture of being balanced so that they can the temple's there not to justify us, but to sanctify us. And we have to go through that justify process. You know, maybe that's time without the sacrament and then the sacrament and then the temple, right? Rather than saying, well, we're going to justify these people by sending them to the temple. Anyways, this is like a, <laughs> a well, no, that's five, you know. Precisely, yeah. precisely. We don't, let me just add to this equation, what happens to a spouse and how they feel about the experiences they have in betrayal yeah when the behavior of their husband is minimized so and, and sending them to the temple can right. be interpreted so, that way so yeah. let's just play out a little scenario the spouse my wife was, gives us as an, as an example in the first person even though this did not happen but let's say that a person myself or whatever is discovered in my addiction by my wife maybe I'm discovered doing porn in the middle of the night or one of my kids discovers me and my wife is just absolutely taken back and she's concerned about my spiritual welfare. And she talks to me about it and said, I can't deal with this. This is not something that is going to happen in our home. You need to deal with this in a healthy way. I think you need to go talk to the bishop. Okay, I agree to go talk to the bishop. I go to the bishop. The bishop then minimizes Hmm. And says something like, well, brother, thank you in coming for talking to me about this. The repentance process starts with confession. Now, just don't do that anymore and read the scriptures. And go about your business. Don't take the sacrament for a couple of weeks. Come back in and talk to me about it. And then we'll, we'll see where we are from there. Goes home and tells his wife that that's what the bishop said to him. What's her response now? Her response is going to be, I am not given... I am now no longer validated in the feelings that I have of betrayal. Mm-hmm. My husband has betrayed me. He's broken the covenants and the commitments that he's made to me of sexual purity. And now I've discovered that it's not that big of a deal. Well, it is a big deal to her. And now she has to go through this process of trying to decide what's right and wrong in my relationship with my husband in relationship to sexual purity. So her experience has to be brought into this. And if there's a minimization that goes on in priesthood offices of this issue, I can assure you because I've only, I've been involved with this hundreds and hundreds of times, secondary trauma occurs and women begin to doubt their testimony. Yeah. And this, again, another reason to involve her in this process, because then you can sort of get her perspective is like, as any point along this path, does it, has it appeared like I've been minimizing this? Because that's good feedback for me, right? Because sometimes we may not 
realize with the best intentions that we're minimizing it from her point of view. And then she feels like she's not heard or then is, you know, has that secondary trauma. So involving her and making sure that you're not missing anything as that helpful priesthood leader. Yeah. Sometimes it goes to extremes. And I've just recently become of a very serious situation where a person was continually lying. He was not being honest about it. He was literally, his wife went to the extent of hiring private investigators to discover that he was doing prostitutes and massage parlors. She went to her priesthood leaders with that information. Her husband denied it, no consequences, until finally, until finally, he was caught. And this idea that he was lying and he was believed in these lies and she was dismissed, it just about killed her. Yeah. Yeah. We just cannot have that kind of a situation. She needs to be believed that I'm experiencing something that is not just distressing, but it's causing me trauma and my, it's hurting my testimony about really what is right and what is wrong in this mortal life when it comes to sexual purity. Yeah. And that can go on for months and months and months. I mean, years. Yeah. I mean, go on. Yeah. 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 Chris, any thoughts that we missed her? Well, as we've been talking, I just have these thoughts and, and feelings, you know, in the New Testament, the Savior says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And maybe for the first time, I changed that a little bit in my mind. If you love me, be honest. Because keeping the commandments requires honesty, right? Yeah. We do have to report that. And so that just brings, for me, that just brings a whole new insight. If you love me, just be honest. And that's a really hard thing to do for a lot of us because of the minimization, you know? So that was just a light bulb for me. I think that's great. And what else are we missing before we wrap up? I mean, the, the concept of recovery is it's multifaceted. There's so many components to it and each story is their own. But I think these are broader topics to really understand, especially as, as leaders in the church to help individuals. But anything else we're missing? I think we're missing some about step 12. In Third Nephi, when the Savior is giving instruction, he talks about not keeping our candle under a bushel. Our lighted candle needs to be set on a hill and so people can see it. And so the alcoholics discovered that the best way to stay sober was to find another person to help that was dealing with the same problem that they had. So there needs to be a level of honesty within our community, within the church, that allows there to be an army of tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of millions and millions of people who will commit to a level of honesty to give them an opportunity to live in recovery themselves and then help their brother. Because the best person to help another who's dealing with what I have dealt with is another person that has experienced what I'm experiencing. So Bill W., who was essentially the person that started Alcoholics Anonymous, knew that he could not stay sober if he wasn't working with other alcoholics. That is true. I have felt that in my own life. I will not be sober if I wasn't committed to working with other people because that work with other people gives me strength, gives me hope, gives me power in that now in sharing these experiences that I've had with others worthily and doing it in an honest way, I'm strengthened and I need that strength. So step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, I'll just read it to you. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all aspects of our lives. 
There is the opportunity. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, let's go out and help other people. We need an army of millions that are willing to be honest. So that army will then be able to thwart the desires of the adversary to take away our agency through this incredibly powerful addiction. Yeah. No more putting it behind us, right? We got to lead out and got to lead. Right. Yeah. Well, and I've said this before, but in 2013, the Lord, a voice came into my mind and says, tell your story. If you tell your story, I will cover you. Just tell your story. And that is encapsulated in step 12. And I get many, many calls from men who are apologetic. I'm so sorry to take your time. I said, listen, don't apologize. For me, this is step 12. If I help you, then I'm helped. And so you just allowed me to do recovery today. So thank you for calling. And so I just love what Stephen said. If we had millions of priesthood brethren who were honest, because we're so inclined to put on this air of perfection that we don't have any problems. But the fact is, everybody does. And being able to talk about that is so relieving when, when Elder Holland, you know, years ago talked about mental health and his own struggles. I just felt this collective sigh of relief on the part of so many people who said it's okay to be broken. And Jesus as a carpenter is well acquainted with knowing how to mend broken things. So I just love that. Yeah. Well, we've, we've gone uh, in different directions and painted the picture well as far as recovery and whatnot. Uh, anything else we're missing? I mean, maybe a whole nother four episode series, but uh, other than that, <laughs> but I've just uh, so much appreciate recognizing the concept that recovery is, is possible. And when individuals hear other people's stories, right, the, the radical, honest stories, they begin to come out of their shell. And you, I know both of you have seen, I've seen it of individuals sharing their story and then other individuals approaching them that realizing oh, I'm not alone. Like his story is like my story and maybe there is hope for me. It happens all the time. All the time. So how can you tell if an addict is re- in recovery? He'll talk about his story. Yeah. How can you tell if an addict is not in recovery? You won't, won't speak of it. Yeah. And so those who are willing to talk about it are people who most generally are in recovery. Those people need to be given voice and an opportunity to speak. At some point, and I believe that this will happen, where we will find ourselves in priesthood meetings, where we are able to support one another in genuinely honest ways because we are choosing to be radically honest. I don't think we're there yet, but I believe that that time can come. I look forward to that time. And that radical honesty isn't a time for us to, it's not a confession situation. It's a hope for God's atonement to be in play in my life. And that's what I speak of. That's what I speak of. And so we oftentimes want to speak about that in the we or the you. I believe we need to speak about it in the me and the I, not the you and the we. So when I speak of my experience, it is my experience. That's what I need to share is my experience, strength, and hope from my own perspective and people that aren't ready to hear it, that's fine. People that want to be judgmental, that is their, that's their right to be so. But there are many who need to hear the story and so that they can find hope in that. And that's why we need to share. Others will find hope in our story. There's a man I love in recovery who was asked recently by his elders quorum president to teach the lesson to the quorum. And he said, can I tell my story? And so he took 40 minutes. You know, he didn't go into sort of details or anything like that, but he told his story of recovery. And now he has 18 months of sobriety. 
And he said, afterwards, dozens of men came up, some with tears in their eyes, said, thank you. Because it's hard to admit that we have that problem. But when somebody else shares their story, which is step 12, it gives me hope. Man, if he can do it, so can I. And so that's why we're so desirous to tell our story. Thank you very much, Kurt, for allowing us to do that. Yeah. Stephen, I know you have all sorts of resources and conferences and and whatnot. If people want to, both the individuals who are reaching for recovery and leaders, where would you send them to to learn more about you and the the good work you and your wife do? We operate a 501c3 nonprofit foundation started in 2009. It's called SA Lifeline Foundation. And the purpose of that is to provide education and information and hope for recovery. So we in doing that, we do operate a website, salifeline.org, where resources and help for recovery are found. And we, in that website, also provide educational material. Some of it is directly focused on members of the church. Some of it is not. My wife has written a very powerful book to women who experience trauma. It's called What Can I Do About Me? can be purchased at Deseret Book. can be purchased online, Amazon, other places. Also, the other two publications that we that we have that one of them is called He Restoreth My Soul. We published that for Donald L. Hilton, MD. He's a neurosurgeon who wrote the book that is uh, helping us understand not just the science of addiction but also recovery. And then we publish a book called Understanding Pornography Addiction and Betrayal Trauma. That one is written specifically for parents and church leaders. That one can be found on our website or at Deseret Book. And then Seven, eight years ago, we started a program of our own 12 steps called SAL. SAL12step.org is where you find out information about our meetings. We operate about 60 meetings a week right now, some of them in person, some of them online. We have people from all over the world attend meetings online, as well as a a number of in-person meetings. We don't have a lot of them out of state, but we have meetings in Alaska in in person and meetings in Idaho in person meetings in Utah in person. But the great thing is, is that wonderful meetings are held online. I intend both in-person and online meetings. And so I'm able to, no matter where I am, be spiritually fed by attending meetings. In those meetings, we help people. To, people are They'll come and they'll find a sponsor. They'll understand what the work of recovery takes. The materials of the 12 steps are made available. And also, one of the great things we offer is a curriculum for working the 12 steps. And that curriculum is about 270 sessions for the men. It takes about 20 to 30 minutes a day per day session. It helps us work through the 12 steps. We're using all the recovery materials. It's a system that we read, we write, we call. And so that gives us accountability, but it also gives us a chance to have this regimented plan. And so especially people that I sponsor, I ask them to use the I ask them to use the curriculum because I know exactly what they're reading. And the questions always come up about this, about, in fact, multiple questions come up initially about understanding what surrender is. Anyway, these resources are available. We have had many, many, many thousands of people participate and some cool things. Here's something that's cool. We have made He Restoreth My Soul, by the permission of the author, available to 14 missions in Western Europe as a free download. So missionaries can be given the access code. They can download that on a device, have access to that. And we've also just recently made that available to all chaplains throughout the world at no charge. 
it's a powerful book and it really helps people understand the challenges associated with addiction and recovery. So the foundation is very active and lots and lots and lots of people are participating to help make it work. There's thousands and thousands of hours given as volunteers to help this work move forward. We also have a conference annually. Last year we had, or it was in September this year, we had Anna Lemke speak, who I spoke of, who wrote Dopamine Nation, and also Dr. Kevin Skinner, who is an, a very qualified therapist, and he spoke to us about betrayal trauma. So we're very active. Go to our websites and look at our, our materials, and if we can be helpful in any way, yeah, that's why we're there. Well, we can't blame you for not providing resources. Uh, no, no, got, no. We, we've got we got a few resources. <laughs> good, good. And then, if if I could just mention, yeah, because of the brought or the um, the podcast last February, I've had a lot of, as I indicated, a lot of people reach out to me, and one of which is a man you know from Texas who reached out to me and said, "Chris, I think you need to have an online presence," and he's helped me to do that without charging me a dime. And he said, because this is such an insidious problem and you're one of few people that's willing to talk about it, I want to do everything I can to help you have that presence online. So we were able to secure the domain name IamFinallyFree.com, just all one word, lowercase, IamFinallyFree.com. And if you go to that webpage, then there's a Facebook link at the top. You can just click on that. It'll take you right to our Facebook group where this conversation I would like it to continue. I think the more and more and more we get people talking about it, the more healing that, that can occur in people's lives. And so that conversation will happen on that side as well. So, awesome. um, and you could, you could go there too, by just, I am finally free. Just type that in when you search for a Facebook yeah. group. And we'll put all those links in the show notes and uh, people right. will be able to find them. So finishes off. What, what final message if you're in a room full of, of leaders, stake presidents, bishops, society presidents, whatever it be. What, what final message do you leave for him, Stephen? My message is a message based upon my experience with incredible priesthood leaders who I know were inspired, for which I will be eternally grateful. Each bishop that I have had who's helped me through this issue, I know has prayerfully considered my needs. Each stake president who's worked with me on this issue, I know has prayerfully considered my needs. So. With that, I know that God's hand is in my life because I have experienced it in marvelous ways. I guess my hope would be that we all desire to learn more about this, take it upon ourselves to have a greater understanding of what we're dealing with, because this issue is probably the greatest plague of this generation that the world has ever known. And it's totally upon us. And it's, it is so powerful and that we cannot hide and turn away from it and feel like it will go away. It will not. So maybe a word of encouragement is gain a greater understanding about what this all means. Not just the challenges associated with the use of pornography, but the challenges associated with the damage that it does to the spirit and to, the, to a marriage, to a spouse. And so once we begin to learn and understand that, I think that we will become greater understanding and of appreciation for what it takes to really, really come to Jesus, what it really takes to live in recovery and what that looks like. The more priesthood leaders understand that, the greater help that they can give and really instilling hope in people's lives who have lost hope in many ways.
That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about. The friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. And remember, go to leadingsaints.org slash 14 to access our full Liberating Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.